Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 6. We're going to cover verses 45 through 56 this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. So as we get, in, uh, get into it this morning, just a reminder where we are coming from, where we left off, Jesus had fed the 5,000, right? And he's now going to send his disciples on, and we pick up with the story there uh, this morning. So I, I wanted to mention that and bring uh, some recall to, to your mind as far as what we talked about last week, because today picks up immediately after that. And we'll kind of refer to that as we, as we move into it this morning, but... Let's go ahead and read. It's in your, in your notes, if you have your bulletin in your Bible, or it's up on the screen as well. Mark chapter 6, 45 through 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them. But when he saw him walking, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to, who, to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So with that, let's take a minute or two. If you would like to reread it, go ahead, take some time to do that. Spend some time in prayer. Let's uh, expectantly hear from the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, as we get into your word now and study this passage. Father, I pray that you would make very, very clear and evident what it is that we are to know and learn. But Father, ultimately, we want to know more of you, know more about you and your love for us, how close you are to us, the promise that you never leave us or forsake us. Father, may we grab onto that this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And I just pray, Jesus, for all of us now in this room that we'd be able to focus in on you. We pray in Jesus' name to eliminate any distraction or discouragement in this place. Thank you, Father, for this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, another moment on the sea. And we'll recall, again, uh, the first instance of Jesus and his disciples on the sea in a little bit. But uh, before we jump into what we just read, I actually want to take us back just a little bit because there's some perspective from one of the other Gospels that I want to bring to this story. Not that it, it uh, changes everything, but gives us a little context, uh, a little more as we jump into this next portion that we read. So I want to remind us uh, and just go back just to the, the previous two verses 
as we closed out the previous section, Mark 6, verses 43 and 44, said, And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So you guys know that's where we ended last week, right? Beautiful miracle, Jesus providing for the masses, but also providing for his own disciples. Remember, he had taken them away, hoping to give them some rest. And they went across the sea, and the masses followed, and there wasn't a whole lot of rest for the disciples. They were immediately put to work, right, to feed the masses and to serve. And so at this moment then, now that that story and that time had, had finished, what we, where we pick up in Mark today, it says immediately he, meaning Jesus, made his disciples to get into the boat. But here's what I want to bring our attention to. You can turn there if you want, but you don't, you don't have to. It'll be up on the screen. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we read of a perspective about the, the response of the masses after the feeding. And in, again, in John 6, 14 and 15, it says, And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's just an interesting perspective to why we read that and why we bring that in is to really help us understand at this point in Jesus' ministry now, he's known, well known. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, the teaching, the authority, he is very, very well known in this region. So much so now that the people weren't just amazed at this sign, this wonder of the feeding, but for some, what we can gather is maybe they're thinking this is fulfillment. Because if we were to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, there is, I believe in chapter 18, I could be wrong, don't write that down. Um, there is a, a prophecy that Moses speaks about one that will come like Moses, a prophet like Moses. And so the people, some, if they have the knowledge and understanding, may have been thinking, this is him. Are they wrong? No, they're not wrong. But Jesus knew, this is not my time. One, I didn't come to be your earthly king to set up a political kingdom. But my time has not yet come. It's coming soon. And so with that, he sends his disciples on, as we pick up in today's reading in Mark 6, says he immediately put the disciples in the boat. Why immediately? It's just a word that we know Mark likes to use. He's mentioned it many times. It provides some uh, hustle to his, his story. But in this case, it was Jesus that dismisses the crowd. Maybe there was some more explanation to them. We don't know. But he dismisses the crowd, and we see that Jesus goes up onto the mountain to pray. And that's where we pick up in our story today. In verses 45 and 46, and again, he immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. I'm going to pause there for a moment because we've seen this on a few occasions in Jesus' ministry and in his life, where he gets away to pray. Now, what's interesting in just the Gospel of Mark and what we've been studying, if we go back to the very beginning, you don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, after Jesus had begun his ministry, we read that he had gone to a desolate place to pray. And his disciples had to come and find him to say, hey, everybody's looking for you. What are you doing? And now what we see in Mark 6, again, he goes up onto the mountain to pray. 
And I'll mention in Mark chapter 14, towards the end of our story, in verse 32, Jesus says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said this to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. So we've seen in the scope of Jesus' ministry, or as we will, as we finish the story and this gospel in months ahead, multiple times Jesus gets away to pray. We see it at the beginning, we see it in the midst, and we see it at the end. I think there's something powerful there that we take away from that. The importance of prayer in our life, in our ministry, in everything that we do, how important prayer is to this life that we lead. Prayer shows dependency on God. Prayer shows dependency on God. It shows that he's in control. He is the one that has given us our life. He is the one that gives us what we need. And in that, I kind of want to break it down a little bit. Number one, prayer is persistent reverence to Almighty God. Persistent reverence to Almighty God. We're told in Scripture that we are to pray without ceasing. And pray without ceasing simply means you don't stop. No matter what is going on, we are persistent in our prayers to God. We bring reverence to God Almighty because of who he is. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the first lines, first couple lines in that prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The importance of your name alone, God, is, is deserving of our praise. To recognize the Almighty, to recognize the supremacy and preeminence of him in our life. For creating us, for saving us. We need to bring that reverence back to him in our prayers. So how often do we get down on our knees or spend time in prayer when everything is fine and dandy? The roses are blooming. We're clicking on all cylinders. Oh, Sergio, is that the right term? Okay, thank you. I wasn't quite sure. But when everything's good, right, it's, it's easy to pray in those moments. Thanking Jesus for our food and thank him for the day and everything is good. Thank you, Lord. But do we have that same sense of urgency in prayer when things aren't going well? When the weeds are growing? When the car is breaking down? The cylinders aren't firing. Should have said firing on all cylinders. That's what it is. But clicking, clicking works. But when things aren't good, when you're in the midst of a trial, struggles, for however long of a time, are we still sensing that need to come before the Lord to pray? And oftentimes we do in those moments because we want something, we need something. Save me from this moment right now, the darkness of, of whatever it might be, Jesus. Get me out of this, get me beyond it. But regardless, are we praying to him at all times? How has God shown his majesty to you? When we pray in reverence to who God is, recall in your mind who he is. How has he revealed that to you? And thank him for those things. That's why I get caught up all the time in sunrise and sunsets because it's the beauty of the sky that he's made. The flowers around us, the, the life that we live, the, the family that he's put in our life, the job he's given us or, or moments in time that he's just revealed the greatness of who he is. Do we speak that to him? Thank him for that. But prayer is also asking for what we need. Jesus tells us to ask. Ask and it will be given to you. According to his plan, his will, his way, right? For what you need in that moment, not just 
anything. Again, Jesus is not that genie in a bottle. But prayer is asking for what we need, yet it's also yielding to his response. We all love the yield thing in driving, right? When you come to a roundabout or you're getting on the freeway, yielding to the flow of the traffic that's already going, right? How difficult is it for us to do that because we might have to slow down or we might have to change our course. We might have to speed up. We might have to stop altogether. But yielding is that. It's us making the adjustment to what is already taking place. And in this life, in the creation of what God has done, we yield to his plan, not the other way around. But we've got to be willing to do that. And we also engage with him in prayer. Oftentimes, we just talk, 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 ask, 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 and then go about our day. But engaging is also listening. Engaging is asking, is requesting, is praising, but then it's also quieting down and, and listening for his voice, listening for his response. And if he doesn't speak to you right away, then still listen, because the response will come, but we got to learn to be quiet in those moments. That's engaging. If you engage in a relationship, you talk, but you also listen, don't you? Because if you don't, you're going to miss something or miss everything <laughs> if we're not listening properly. So we need to evaluate some of the things that you've asked from the Lord. Now put those requests up against Scripture. Did that hurt anybody else? <laughs> what have you been asking of the Lord? And put it in context of Scripture. So we might evaluate how are we asking as we pray. What are some of the areas of our life where we need to yield to the Lord's will and, and not ours? Prayer is also knowing that He will bring revelation about Himself to you or for you in prayer. And for our life and our relationship with him. So think about how God has revealed himself to you personally. The direction that he's given you. The path of life he's put you on. It's not a mistake. No matter what point you're at in life. It's not a mistake. Of where he has you and why he has you there. So listen. Be patient. And allow him to work. So it's just something the Lord had given me a while ago. So if you caught it, prayer is persistent reverence, asking, yielding, engaging. That revelation that he's going to give us through this concept of prayer. We need to practice this on a regular basis. If God himself in the flesh, Jesus himself, at the beginning, middle, and end of his ministry, and many times in between, we need to do the same. We need to do the same. So as we move on in our story, in verses 47 and 48, it says, And when evening came, the boat was out at sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. This is where we contrast the, the previous sea experience that the disciples had with Jesus. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 38, Jesus was with them in the boat, wasn't he? But Jesus was at perfect peace. He was asleep amidst the storm. And it was in that storm, even though Jesus was physically present with them, the disciples were freaking out. 
We are going to perish. Don't you care? Waking him up. So even having Jesus in their presence, they were still frightened to death. But now we got an experience where the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is not physically with them. And they're still struggling painfully against the wind. Now you would think, and this is where we can easily point fingers at the disciples, right? Well, just think back to what Jesus did for you the previous time you were in a boat, afraid for your life. Right? It's easy to do that, isn't it? When we have the full picture, the full scope of, of what's happened. But think about our own life when we do that. When we look back and we easily forget prior experiences that God has brought us through. And here we are in another storm, another trial, rowing our hardest. And we just forget to reach out and cry out to the Lord for help, don't we? And I think this is a great example for our own life. That you, we all, we all need to eliminate any semblance of pride in our life that is going to keep us from crying out to God any moment and every moment of our life. It's what he desires us to do. That's relationship. That I can't do this on my own. And the only reason we don't do that is pride, isn't it? I'm strong enough. I'm powerful enough. It might take me 14 hours to get across, but I will row through this storm. Now, that's the other kind of idea that we can pick up from this after feeding the 5,000 and feeding them, let's call it an early dinner. Here they are now on the sea, rowing, 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 and it's now the fourth watch of the night. It's an interesting statement, but in their day, the Jewish people broke up their evening into watches. And the fourth watch is about anywhere between 3 and 6 a.m., so from the early dinner they served to now somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., these disciples have been rowing. Does that give you some perspective of the hours and hours and hours they've been on the sea trying to get to where Jesus told them to go? They've been, they've been struggling. But what do we see? Jesus saw them. So he may not have been physically present, but he was with them. He had his eyes on them. And that's what we need to take from this. He's always with us. He sees us. He sees us in our struggle. He sees us in our pain. He sees us working and striving and pressing on. And this is the beauty, almost the, almost the hilarity of this, this passage. And I love it. But when Jesus came to them walking on the water says he meant to pass them by can you visualize that for a moment i don't know i was just you know as you study this and you read this kind of like he's just walking on the water hi guys how you doing and i'm just gonna keep going he meant to pass them by why would he do that to me what i'm picking up from scripture is this is almost a characteristic of god here's why i say that if we go back to the very beginning, the pre-Exodus story, there's an event called the Passover. And in the Passover story, the Israelites were to be released, but God had judgment to exact on the Egyptians. But were the Israelites obedient and did what they were supposed to do by 
spreading the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, what would the angel do? Pass by. Because the people that spread the blood on the doorposts recognized and heard God's voice and were obedient to him, and he would pass over and he, they would not receive his judgment. So let's jump ahead now to the book of Acts chapter 17. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Nope, that is right. Acts chapter 17. It'll be up on the screen. In verses 26 and 27, this is, this is a verse that I think we really need to grab onto. In Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, it says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So when we seem to be struggling and going through something, Oftentimes, what we'll do is we'll say, God, where are you? God, where have you been amidst this trial, this struggle, this storm? What does this say? We're the ones that need to open our eyes and find our way, feel our way towards him. Because we've allowed ourselves to become blinded to his presence. Because we get so focused on our trial, so focused on what we're going through, we immediately forget the promise that he's given us time and time again in his word. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you wherever you go. But what does he need us to do? Jesus, I need you. Cry out to him. So, there's one more story that I can, I can bring us to right now in Luke chapter 24. You don't have to turn there, but it was a post, uh, post-resurrection story. Jesus had res- resurrected from the dead, and he was appearing to a lot of people, and he met a couple disciples on the road. They were going to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus kind of allowed them to be blinded to who he was, and he was walking with them and talking with them, and, and he's basically having a conversation with them, saying, what's going on, guys? What's happening? And they basically responded to him and said, have you not been aware or around of knowing what's just happened, that Jesus was just crucified and we can't find him? People that we know went to his tomb and he was gone. How are you not aware of this, not realizing they were speaking to Jesus? And he began to teach them throughout all of scriptures, every verse pertaining to who he was. And when they got to where they were going, Scripture tells us in Luke 24 that Jesus acted as if he was going further. Just revealed everything to these guys and he said, okay, see ya. And just acts as if he's going to keep going. So there's something about this thing that God does for us. He walks with us. He never leaves us. He gives us maybe this semblance of freedom. To see how we're going to respond and react to the things that we go through. But what was the disciples' response in this moment? As he meant to pass them by, what did they do? They freaked out. (laughs) Fear overwhelmed them. It's a ghost. They were terrified. 
what would our reaction be? After going hours and hours and hours, who knows how many days without sleep, remember, Jesus was going to take them away to rest. They didn't get their rest. They had to serve 5,000 plus people and then haul those big baskets of leftovers into the boat and they've been rowing for hours against the storm. They're exhausted. Don't forget they're human. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're frustrated. And I'll, I'll explain very clearly why they're frustrated in a little bit. And now they see this figure walking on the water. I think in our exhaustion and frustration, and we'd be freaked out too. But Jesus meant to pass them by until they all set their eyes on him. Verses 49 and 50, But when they all saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. What do our circumstances do to us in our vision, in our relationship with Jesus? Do you get distracted? Do you get blinded by your circumstances? Because we put our circumstances right here, <laughs> and we see nothing else. So what do we do in that moment? How do we get beyond our own nose to see the fact that Jesus is right there, right next to us? If you want to know the quick answer, I think we need to go back to practicing prayer. We need to go back to pressing into Jesus. Now, I hope we, we all will understand that this doesn't immediately eliminate the possibility that there will be fear and trials and tests and storms and other things that come our way because that is a guarantee. Those will happen. But pressing into Jesus in prayer and in our, in our life, in our pursuit of him, helps us see beyond the immediacy of the problem. But that is a lifelong pursuit that we got to keep pursuing day after day after day in everything that we do. It doesn't eliminate the waves crashing, does it? But what that vision might do is help separate those waves a little bit. So rather than being drowned by those waves, you're seeing them come. doesn't stop them from coming, but maybe you're a little more prepared for that wave to come and you can respond and trust in Jesus in those moments. But see in their terror, what, is, what does Scripture tell us? Jesus immediately spoke to them. He saw their terror. He heard their cries. And he immediately reassures them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. You know, take heart basically means, hey, be cheerful, calm down. Not in a bad way, just relax yourself. But maybe in some effect, he was basically telling them, hey, stop screaming, it's me. <laughs> it's Jesus. When you look at that term, do not be afraid, it means be secure. So Jesus, by saying, take heart, do not be afraid, saying, hey, be cheerful, be secure, you're safe. I'm here, I'm in your presence. Take heart that I'm with you. Now, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Because he has called us. We belong to him. I want to take us back to last week. We read through Psalm 23. All six verses of the chapter. But I want to remind us in this case, in this context, verse 4 of Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what? You, Jesus, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But can we visualize that for a moment? We did a little bit of that last week, but yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if I can bring to a recall for all of us a little Pixarian theology for a moment. Remember when Marlon was told to swim through the crevice or whatever that was? But he came up to it and said, I don't think so. That's dark in there. Who knows what's in there? So he swam over, tried to get around and found more problems and issues on top. But were he just obedient to what he was told to do, even though you have to go through the darkness, through the valley, the shadow of death, Jesus' promises, I'm with you. It's okay. Take heart. Be secure. I'm right here with you. So in Jesus, we find joy. We find direction. We find safety, despite what may be going on around us. So in verses 51 and 52, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Again, a pointing fingers scenario for the disciples. Like, really? You're still amazed, astounded? But in the sense here, what we're looking at is this, if you put it together with what comes after that statement, it's not a reverential awe, amazement, fall on my knees and, and worship Jesus moment. Because what does it say just after that they were astounded? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, can we come back to that for a moment? They've been rowing for how long now? Hours and hours and hours. And here Jesus comes walking on the water. The wind ceases. Their storm ceases. Their safety, their security. Jesus is in their presence. And, and here they are. Well, I just don't understand about the loaves, Jesus. So they've been spending hours pressing against the waves. And what's been on their mind? How did he make so much bread? How did he multiply all those fish? This is where the disciples are at. Don't laugh at them. Because this is where we can be at too. We get so caught up in, in one thing, that's where our mind goes and focuses on that, and we don't see the bigger picture. Because the bigger picture of what Jesus had just done, miracle, fed the 5,000, miracle, walking on water, miracle, Peter walks on the water, and that's what Mark's account doesn't give us. 
But if we go to Matthew chapter 14, we get in this scenario that before the storm ceases, Peter looks at Jesus and says, if it's really you, let me come and get out of the boat and walk to you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, come on. And Peter walks on the water, but what happens? His vision goes to the storm, goes to the waves. And what happens to Peter? He starts to sink and needs to cry out to Jesus again in that moment saying, save me, Lord. And Jesus picks him up and they walk back to the boat together and then get back in the boat. So why Mark doesn't include that in his account, I don't know, but that's not, not something we need at the moment. But another miracle that they had witnessed together. The other miracle, so again, fed the 5,000, walks on water. Peter walks on water. Miracle four, the storm ceases. They get in the boat, everything calms down. But yet, where's their mind? I'm confounded by the loaves, Jesus. But it says their hearts were hardened. That's a difficult thing. After everything they've experienced in this ministry with Jesus and walking with him, talking with him, learning from him, it says their hearts were hardened in that moment. They missed the connection. But I think something that we can all identify with is I think they were discouraged. They didn't get their rest. They didn't get their time away. They were called to serve again. They were tired, exhausted from rowing for hours and hours and hours. They had to serve thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So they may be in a moment of, what about us? What about me? Maybe they got a little too self-focused in the moment. Maybe, and I don't know, they began to develop a been there, done that mentality. How many of us have that maybe have been a part of ministry year after year after year after year, and we see the same things, and we read the same stories, and we kind of develop that yada, yada, yada factor? Heard that. John 3.16 loses some of its power because I've heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it. So I don't know, maybe the disciples had, oh, another miracle. Eh, seen it. Been there, done that. So maybe they were just kind of settling in a little too much into who they were. But regardless of why their hearts were hardened, discouragement, exhaustion, been there, done that, I don't, I don't know. But it's a moment for us to learn from, to take from Scripture and say, not that we, I will never, ever do that, Jesus, We'll, we'll learn that from Peter later on. <laughs> if you know what story I'm referring to, but we'll get there. But what we need to take from this is, I've got to do whatever I can in my power, in my relationship with Jesus, and fix my eyes on the one who promises me everything. Everything. You know, to conclude our story nothing we're going to really break down too much but they get to the other side and they continue on in ministry and Jesus's popularity is exploded at the pinnacle of his his ministry his popularity 
And people are coming from everywhere to bring in the sick for healing. But the one thing I just picked up, and I'll just, if you want to make a little asterisk side note, I thought it was interesting that it finishes with that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. For some reason, I made that connection to the, the bleeding woman that Jesus had healed. Because all she wanted to do was what? If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. That faith in her. So I wonder, just wonder, was she sharing her testimony? Was she sharing her story? And what got to the people was, all I had to do was just reach out and touch his garment. But faith in him, and that was catching, catching wind. Just kind of find it an interesting perspective. We don't know. But regardless, the power of Jesus Christ is apparent. So what do we pick up from this morning? One, knowing we will go through storms in life, it's a promise. It's a guarantee 100% of the people in this room are going through something at some level or some degree right now. I'll stake everything on that. One, because I'm looking at most of you, if not all of you, and from what I know, every single one of us is going through something right now. And don't compare yourself. It's not a time to look around and go, well, at least I'm not going through what they're going through. Or they don't know anything about trials. They don't know what I'm going through. We just got to reflect here. Where are you going to be in that moment right now and what you're going through? So we need to continually seek the Lord in prayer. Peace or chaos, we can go to the Lord in prayer. We need to believe in the promise that Jesus always sees us. He's always with us. We don't need to fear. We need to set our eyes on him. So make a note and go back and reread Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We fix our eyes on him, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who's always with us. And three, ultimately, Jesus is our provider. Jesus is our protector. In ministry and in life, we have those moments of hardship. We'll get sucked into the woe is me mentality. Poor me, woe is me. My life is difficult. My life is tough. And sometimes we even seek comfort from other people to make us feel better. But where do we go? Where should we go? It's a better way to put that. Where should we go? And in life, we need to continue to trust in him, period. Period. That's what it comes down to. Faith and trust in our Lord, our Savior. But we need other people sometimes to come alongside of us and, and help us with that, don't we? We absolutely do. But you got to be willing to share. you got to be willing to talk. you got to be willing to lay your heart on the table and say, this is what's happening with me. I need somebody to talk to about this. That person isn't going to solve the problem. But it's community. It's accountability. It's comfort that Jesus allows other people in our life for that purpose to walk with us through those issues. 
but every single one of us relying solely on Jesus Christ for our help, for our provision. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again. And-